0: Welcome, I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard or I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Mike Cox. He's best-selling author of a two-volume history of the Texas Rangers, Born in Amarillo, Mike is a native Texan who began his newspaper career in 1967, reviewing Texas-related books for the San Angelo Standard Times. An elected member of the Texas Institute of Letters, Mike has written 35 nonfiction books and hundreds of magazine articles, newspaper columns, and essays. He currently lives in the Texas Hill Country. Hi, Mike. Thanks for being with me today. Happy to
1: be here, coming to you live from Rockport, Texas today. I came down here actually to work on a book I'm trying to get finished, and also to see how much fishing I can get in and how much seafood I can eat. So that's what I—that's what I'm doing.
0: I have family in San Antonio, so we get down there quite a bit, and we've been up in the Texas Hill Country. It's beautiful up there where you live. Mm-hmm. Sure is. When did you first discover your passion for history, and in particular Western history?
1: I really lucked out. I inherited my, as you put it, passion for history. My grandfather was born in 1897 in central Texas, which made him just old enough to remember the horseback era. But he early on embarked on a career as a newspaper reporter and eventually newspaper editor. And in the course of that, he got to meet some of the early day 20th century Texas Rangers and latter day 19th century Texas Rangers. That's how he got interested, in he was a very good storyteller up to the raconteur level, and so I grew up hearing him tell stories about old-time rangers he knew and other things about Texas history. And I think that's one of the things that really triggered my interest early on in Texas history. And then my mother, his daughter, was a librarian and a writer, and she, too, was very interested in Texas history. So I grew up not knowing any better than to be interested in <laughs> history. <laughs>
0: Like in your blood sort of thing. Indeed. Indeed. It was inherited. When you were going to university, what was your major? Were you interested in English and writing, or was there something else that you were thinking about?
1: I pretty much always knew that I wanted to be a writer, whether I would become a writer or not was a matter of doubt for a while. But I knew that's what I wanted to be, again, because my grandfather was a writer, my mother was a writer, and actually my father was a writer. The three key people in my family were all writers. I started writing as a teenager, writing a high school column for the newspaper in Austin. But in terms of college, yes, I studied journalism. I went to Angelo State University in San Angelo, and then I went to Texas Tech University in Lubbock, and then I went to the University of Texas in Austin, and then I went to Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. And I tell everybody that my degree is ABA, all but algebra. So (laughs) I am unlettered, but still have managed to struggle my way through and write, as you said, a bunch of books. But I learned a lot in college as well. I don't mean to denigrate that.
0: While you were there in university, did you first get to work for a
1: newspaper? I graduated from high school in Austin, and I didn't have any kind of scholarship. wasn't a football player, and I needed a job to go to school. So again, my grandfather knew the publisher of the San Angelo Standard Times. They were old uh, friends, and he just called him and said, Houston, my grandson's coming out there to go to college. Have you got anything for him? And so they hired me before I started school, and it was supposed to be just a summertime position. But near the end of that, the managing editor of the newspaper called me aside one day, and he said, we like what you're doing. Would you like to stay with us full time? And I said, sure, I needed the money anyway. And it was a hoot being a 19-year-old newspaper reporter. So I kept the job throughout the rest of my college career. I worked full-time at night for various newspapers, and then I went to school full-time during the daytime. And I'll tell people that fact is well demonstrated in my grade point average, that I was uh, (laughs) busy working when I should have been studying. But really, it enabled me to learn on two different tracks, the real-world track of being a newspaper reporter and the traditional track of being a college student. I learned things both ways. And really, when you're a young newspaper reporter, you cover police and courthouse. So very quickly, I got an exposure to the real world of crime and violence and all that sort of thing.
0: There's the two schools of learning how to write. In academia, It's more of a slow process. You take your time, you do your writing, other people approve it. But when you're actually working for a newspaper, you got to write that story right now. That way of learning stays with you.
1: The expression that I use when I talk to people about this is I tell them that I am a proud veteran of the word Marines. When you're a newspaper reporter, it doesn't make any difference whether you feel like writing or whether the news strikes you or whether you have a hangover or just had a fight with your wife or whatever. You still got to write the story if you want to remain employed. And the good thing about that and why I liken it to being in the Marines is you learn how to do it under fire. You learn how to gather information and you learn how to organize information and you learn how to present it in a understandable manner. And on top of everything else or on top of those three things, you learn how to do it in a hurry. I can't say enough about how helpful it was to me to spend the first 20 years of my career as a newspaper writer and then later on as a mid-level newspaper editor.
0: It's very interesting to me that when you have to write for a living, like the old pulp writers of the 40s and 50s, You have to keep those words flowing. And I like the term, the word Marines. That really is true if you want to make a living as a writer. You can be a writer and still don't make a living. But if you're going to make a living as a writer, you really have to be able to turn out the words.
1: Yes. I have never had much patience with those who wring their hands and say that they're suffering from writer's block. Maybe it exists, but it never has existed for me. I've never had the luxury of being able to claim writer's block, nor the inclination, really. I'm not entirely sure it's a legitimate condition if you're really a writer. A lot of people want to be writers, and they may suffer trying to get the proper mood, but My theory is that really, you ought to be able to write under any circumstances. Now, that's not to say that I certainly write better when I'm well-rested and when I'm in a good mood, but if you average it out, if you look at something that I write on a day that I'm tired or not in a good mood, and then you look at what I write the next day, you can see some difference, but it pretty much averages out. And if I've written something that doesn't quite work or needs help, I give it help. I'm certainly a great believer in rewriting or at least revising my work. When I was a young newspaper man, I thought, shoot, I know how to write in a hurry, and I can write a first draft that's publishable. After I got out of the newspaper business, I outgrew that, and I know now that the best writing evolves through the revision process. Now, I evolve my writing in a hurry. I don't like to spend a whole lot of time with it, but I do, of course, revise, and I think that's an important thing for any writer to learn.
0: Writing is rewriting.
1: Yes, it's a process. It's not something you just sit down and write War and Peace off the top of your head. It takes some effort and some experimentation and changing, moving things around and saying things more clearly.
0: When you're writing nonfiction, do you get to a point where you say, this isn't working, I need to go back and look at the direction I should take? I don't
1: think so much for me in nonfiction, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard novelists say the characters take over, come to life, and you become almost more of a transcriber, it seems like, than a writer. The words come from some mystical, magical place that we don't really understand, and they work.
0: You're writing nonfiction history, but you're still writing about characters. Do those characters speak to you when you are putting their true stories down?
1: Yes, I've written a book that just came out a few months ago on nonfiction writing called 7 Million Words, How to Write and Sell Nonfiction. And that's one of the cases that I make is that good nonfiction should read like a good novel. You use many of the same literary devices to write good nonfiction that you do to write fiction. Now, I'd say that never having published any fiction, but I've had readers tell me that my nonfiction work reads novelistically. And so, yes, I get involved in the characters. A book I did a couple of years ago called The Train Crash at Crush, America's Deadliest Publicity Stunt, involved some wonderful characters this was based on something that happened in 1896 here in Texas where the Missouri Kansas and Texas Railroad deliberately crashed together two steam locomotives at 50 plus miles an hour to make money by selling excursion tickets to the site that they'd selected for the collision and also of course to get plenty of free publicity and some of the okay, characters wait involved a in wait, that, wait 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 <laughs> know,
0: wait wait, wait. <laughs> who 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 thought this was a good idea <laughs> And
1: get this, the event occurred at a venue that the railroad built specifically for this crash north of Waco, Texas. The event was the brainchild of the general passenger agent for the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad. The headquarters was in Dallas, and his name was William George Crush, C-R-U-S-C-H. The little depot they built was named after him, Crush, Texas. And the event came to be known as the crash at Crush, nicely alliterative. He dreamed it up and sold the brass on it and then ignored when one of the railroad engineers said at that kind of speed, the boilers were likely to explode. Crush didn't think that was likely, but sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And both boilers exploded in front of a crowd estimated variously between 30 and 50,000 people. It sent hot shrapnel into the crowd, and the great miracle is that only two people were killed outright, and I think six were injured. But Crush was a fascinating character. There was another guy who actually invented the concept of making money off crashing steam locomotives, which became a thing. It started in the mid-1890s and continued until the early 1930s as a public entertainment Promoters would do them at state fairs and other events as uh, ways to make money and draw in people. And fascinating story. I've got a movie option on it. I don't know whether it'll ever get produced or not, but at least a screenwriter is now writing a screenplay based on the book. A good nonfiction book, I think, has really interesting characters in it. And yes, I get involved with those characters. I want to try to think like them. I want to know everything possible I can find out about them. And it's a really fun process
0: you and I should try and one-up the train crash. We'll go to an air show and have two 747s crash above the crowd <laughs> just to watch what happens. The idiocy of that... that crazy. I know it's crazy. It's just amazing. But it's not just the guy who comes up with the idea. It's the other guys that go, okay... <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Sure. The fascinating thing is, like I said, somewhere between 30,000 on the low end and 50,000 on the high end people paid American money to go out in the middle of nowhere in central Texas and watch this happen and dodge flying shrapnel and loved it. It was a great spectacle. And everybody loves a train wreck as long as you're not on the train.
0: It speaks to perhaps some of the people that go to see Formula One or other forms of car racing, not to see who wins, but to see who crashes.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Of course, something like that can never happen today, thanks to OSHA and all other sorts of governmental regulation. But back then in the 1890s, that was at the height of the corporate greedy power era, and they could do pretty much anything
0: they wanted to. Unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit about your two-volume Texas Ranger history and how that came about. Now, little known fact, I was actually sworn in as a Texas Ranger back in 1988, if you can believe it. Oh. I was working with LAPD. I was assigned to a federal task force. And in order to have federal arrest powers, they had to wear us in as Texas Rangers because they have jurisdiction nationwide. So we were sworn in as Texas Rangers. We didn't get the badge more as the pity, but Uh-oh. I still have all my paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> well. What was it about the Texas Rangers that grabbed your attention and you thought, this is what Texas is all about. This is what I've got to write about for these two huge volumes.
1: It's a one, two, three process. One, I've already told you, I grew up hearing really good Texas Ranger stories from my grandfather. Two, as a newspaper reporter, I interviewed Texas Rangers and got to see them in action covering police news in Texas. And thirdly, then, after my newspaper career ended, in 1985, I went to work for the Texas Department of Public Safety with the lofty title, <laughs> and I laugh about a chief of media relations. And my job was to deal with the news media and to represent the Texas Rangers. Most of the Rangers I knew would just as soon get in a gunfight as stand in front of a TV camera. So that gave me good job security. So those three things, the stories from my granddad, interactions with the Rangers as a reporter, and then daily interactions with the Rangers as a non-gun-toting colleague, completely convinced me that it was time for a modern history of the Texas Rangers. So I signed a contract to write the book in 1998, I believe it was, and swore and subscribed that I would have it finished in a year and a half, and the first volume came out in 2008, Fortunately, the publisher was understanding and let me take plenty of time to do research on it. I wrote it it as one large volume, and then one day the publisher called me and said, I really like this, but it's really long. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to tell me I need to cut the heck out of it. And then he said, so what we're going to do, we're going to publish it as a two-volume history. And he said, you'll make more money off of it. And I said, oh, okay. (laughs) I can't argue that. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. (laughs) It's done real well. It's beginning to sell out now. I checked recently the number of copies they have available has dropped pretty low, but one of the volumes has gone to print-on-demand sales, and the other one is probably headed in that direction. But they'll stay that way, hopefully, for as long as I'm still around, if not longer, because people are fascinated by the rangers. When I was with the DPS, I'd get media calls from all over the United States and really all over the English-speaking world from people wanting to interview a real live Texas Ranger or ask me questions about the the Texas Rangers. Occasionally, people would get them mixed up with the ball team, the baseball team, the Texas Rangers. uh, (laughs) That was kind of funny. Not
0: quite the same.
1: I used to explain to people, our guys carry guns and the other ones carry bats and gloves.
0: It seems to me in our modern politically correct society, there are those people who want to sully the name of the Texas Rangers by judging what actions were taken by today's standards. I don't think it reveals the truth in any way, shape or form. The Rangers today are one of the most highly effective, highly regarded law enforcement agencies in the country. But they've always been that way as far as I'm concerned because they got the job done and it was not a pretty job to do.
1: That's absolutely correct. I have no patience with those who say that the early day rangers were practitioners of genocide against the helpless Comanche people and the helpless Apache people. Now, we can argue all day the morality of Western expansion. They did what they needed to do to support the society that they supported. It was brutal. It was brutal on both parts. They were brutal, and the American Indians, being dispossessed of their land, were understandably equally as brutal. And then the Mexican Revolution, and there were instances where rangers did go beyond the law and simply execute people because they were suspected of being Mexican bandits. So what I tell people is, with apologies to Clint Eastwood, that the Texas Rangers are best represented by those words, the good, bad, and the ugly. They did do some bad things, and they did do some ugly things. But in my opinion, the good that they did has always overridden the bad. And now, of course, as you said, it's a modern law enforcement agency. And really, since the early to mid-1930s, it's been straight up. They play by the rules, and people who don't play by the rules, they either spend months in internal affairs, or they get cashiered, or in some cases, even filed on. But that happens very rarely. Just as an example, as I told you when we started talking, I'm down here on the Texas coast. Yesterday at nearby Aransas Pass, some kid showed up with a handgun at Aransas Pass High School, about nine miles from where I'm sitting right now. And of course, law enforcement from all over the area showed up to deal with the situation. And I was watching the news last night and he wasn't identified, but I can spot a Texas Ranger with my eyes <laughs> closed. And so here's all these county officers and city officers. And then here's a guy in a white shirt with a tie and a straw cowboy hat with a military style tactical vest on loaded with clips of ammunition. And on the back of it, it says Texas Ranger. And that would make me put down a pistol if I was a high school kid, just seeing that guy there. And most people, unless they saw those words on the back, wouldn't even realize who that was. Of course, I've been there long enough to spot him, but that's the thing they do. They're there every day. They're very well trained, and they have kind of a Marine Corps attitude that none of those Rangers wants to be the first guy to screw up the now nearly 200-year Ranger tradition. The ones that I knew well are very conscious of their rich heritage and tradition. And like I said, they want to sustain that. They don't want to mess it up. And it it gives them a little extra edge. They've got the good training. But if you think you're different, therefore you are different. And they do have an attitude, I think, that's somewhat peculiar just to Texas.
0: It makes them stand out. It does. I know it is not an official motto of the Texas Rangers, but the statement, one riot, one ranger, that has fallen into the popular lexicon does give you an idea of essentially what the early rangers were like because there were so few of them on the ground.
1: And even modern day, for instance, if a high patrol trooper gets in a shooting incident or he has to either shoot somebody or shoot at somebody, the first thing that happens is a ranger shows up I don't care what time of day it is, the ranger shows up to handle the investigation. They come in and take control because they have the experience and the attitude. And that's good. It's good that we have folks that that can come in and know what to do.
0: It's called command presence. There you go. They turn up and you just Mm -hmm. know they're in charge. And they put on the front that they can handle it. But you come to believe that front. It becomes who you are, that command presence. And I think the Texas Rangers are the epitome of that
1: hmm Absolutely.
0: While you were writing your history of the Texas Rangers, were there things that surprised you or stood out for you as far as the history of the Texas Rangers went?
1: I don't know if anything surprised me or not. I was happy to uncover some, at that time, lesser-known things that the Rangers did. One of my favorite stories that I discovered goes back to the Indian fighting when a Ranger whose parents or close friend of the family, depending on who tells the story, had been the victim of an Indian massacre and scalped. And so this guy is with the Rangers and they get in a fight with Indians in central Texas and The rangers prevail and they capture one Indian. And this guy who had lost an acquaintance wanted to summarily kill the prisoner. And the lieutenant in charge of the troop that was out there said, no, we're not going to kill prisoners. Let's take him to Austin. And so they load him up on a mule and take him in the frontier Austin back in the mid-1870s and parade him up Congress Avenue, which is the main drag of town take him straight to the governor's mansion and take him into the governor and said, Governor, we've captured this Indian. What should we do with him? And the governor says, I didn't ask for any Indians. And the governor has no solution. So they book him into the Travis County Jail, probably the only prisoner of war ever booked into the Travis County Jail. This ranger has an idea. Everybody in town seems very excited that a wild Indian is in Austin. So he goes to a local printer and gets uh, handbills printed up saying, come see the wild Indian. And he strikes a deal with the local opera house owner to put the Indian on display up on stage and literally sell tickets for the public to come in and see this wild Indian. To the credit of the state of Texas, the adjutant General gets a copy of one of these circulars and finds out about it and nixes it, you know, tells the guy they can't do that and put the Indian back in jail. So it shows how extraordinary the rangers could be in their thinking <laughs> and it also shows that the state of Texas maintained control and did have a sense of decency and was not going to allow something like that. So that's one of my favorite examples of a little law story that I was able to uncover. I love those sort of things. I often find them in newspapers. Of course, they also pop up in the company reports the captain has to write. Though the Texas Rangers, really up until the 40s or 50s, were not long on writing offense reports. One of my favorite stories is that supposedly, at one point, some bureaucrat in Austin decided they needed more paperwork and that needed the rangers to keep better track of what they did. To make it easier on them, they printed a form to fill out. All the ranger had to do was just fill in the blank and send it back into headquarters in Austin. They got a report coming in from a ranger, and there was a blank on the form that said disposition of prisoner. And this one ranger wrote in, damn bad, had to kill him. Uh, <laughs>
0: Uh, and, uh, I love and it. So. That's, that's okay. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking, though, is if he'd had taken his wild Indian and got another wild Indian and they'd let him run towards each other and crash in the middle of the stage, they <laughs> <Yeah>, might have <yeah. laughs> let that go through. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I, I can't get past that Jess okay. You've made my day with that story. Mike, thanks for being with me today and telling us the stories of the Texas Rangers. I appreciate your time, and hopefully you and I will talk again soon.
1: Absolutely. I hope so too, and at the next Western Runners of
0: America's meeting. Absolutely. We'll see you there. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and don't let a Texas Ranger get on your trail. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.